Welcome to Land Speed Legends, a podcast talking to the men, the women, the legends that make land speed racing great. Discover the stories of these ordinary people whose passion for land speed racing has made them legendary. And now, here's your host, the Bonneville Belle, the High Boy Honey, the Salt Princess, Allison Volk-Dean. Okay, so today with me, I have the legendary Dennis Sullivan. Thank you, Dennis, for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we were at a car show last week, and I asked you if you'd come do this, and you graciously did, so that was exciting. And um, yeah, just you were talking to me earlier about uh, just the beginning, you've always kind of been into cars, like a lot of people on this podcast, you've always been into cars. So why don't you just kind of go about, tell us about that. I think like most young kids, you know, we, you know, you did things to your bicycle, you know, put the, the, the clothespin and the, and the card and made it, made it sound like a motorcycle. And, and, and we built model cars and I bought car magazines back when they were little, about the size of a Reader's Digest. And then just eventually moved into having a car. And one of my first cars was a 1959 MGA, mm. which is a British sports car. And so we did a few things to it. And, and th- at that time, they ran what they called Jim Connors, which then changed to follow solo racing. And now I think it's called autocross. But they set up cones in the Rice Eccles uh, stadium parking lot and we would go up there and and run our cars and and have a good time and then they had uh amateur sports car racing out at uh, used to be the old dump and now it's the number two airport out in west jordan so that's kind of where i got started and just kept progressing up and doing different things like that Mm -hmm. So you were kind of always into racing, and then you, sounds like you went into drag racing a little bit. You kind of got connected into that. Yeah, I had uh, um, a good friend that I that I went to high school with. His dad was a pretty famous uh, local racer. His name was Sonny Schoenfeld, and he ran dragsters, and he ran uh, production vehicles, and he had a little altered that had a six-cylinder in it that that I used to go with him down to Las Vegas to race Stardust. And so I kind of did a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. And, and that was that was enjoyable. Yeah, that's fun. And uh, you just kind of were on the crew for them. Yeah, just yeah. on the crew. And and uh, there was a lot of adventures doing that. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, so did you guys just race locally? Or did he, was he, he national? He, no, he raced California and he raced uh, Denver and, and, and so the Las West. Vegas. Yeah, pretty the much the area. West, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, um, then you, you said that you kind of, you hooked up with the niches in circle track racing a little bit through your brother. Yeah. My brother, uh, got involved with Kent Noli, who owned a sprint car and a midget and different deals. And so my brother worked for him. He had Intermountain Machine Tool and my brother was working for him. And so then they got involved in the sprint cars and, and, we actually had a rear engine uh, sprint car they ran in the modified. Excuse me. The car was actually a Loda Lola that had been kind of pirated and remade into what they call the the Johnny Lightning Special. 
And then a gentleman named Keith MacArthur, it was an Indianapolis car, he got a hold of it, and then he cut it down and shortened it and put a small block Chevy in it and made it a, a short track asphalt car. And so we ran that and was very, very successful with that. Many uh, fast times, many uh, trophies and, and, and things like that. And then they kind of started partnering with the Nish family, with, with Terry and Mike and Jeff and BJ, and, or not BJ. <laughs> Mike, TJ. TJ. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, I started going down and being part of the crew, and then they started building a car called Frankenstein, which was a pretty interesting car. It's, uh, it was a combination of an Indy car, a... Oswego offset sprint car and then a conventional sprint car. Okay. So it was it was pretty exotic. I didn't know where that's where Frankenstein came from. Yeah. So that's interesting. And, and that's why they decided to call it Frankenstein because yeah. it was a combination of all different yeah. things put together. And so I built the wings for it and uh, helped with the suspension and things like that. And then uh, once we'd go, we'd go and and they ran. They ran Mesa Martin. They ran uh, Phoenix. We ran uh, um, Evergreen up in, in uh, Oregon. So that was a fun. And I know Terry always wanted to take it back to New York to race mm -hmm. at Oswego. Because Oswego, even though it's a dirt track, it's so hard. It's like running on asphalt. Yeah. So so we did that. And did, you, did you guys go back to New York? No. Oh, we, okay. I never did go back. <laughs> and so... Uh, but that was a lot of fun. And then uh, it kind of, my brother got out of it, and uh, one of our drivers, uh, unfortunately, committed suicide. Mm -hmm. and So uh, it, it kind of slowed down a lot. Kind of put a damper on it. Yeah. yeah. And, and other things were involved, and mm -hmm. so kind of slowed it down. And then, uh, so I became very good friends with Terry and Mike and, mm -hmm. and Jeff and and. I've known Terry, well, now he's passed away, but I knew Terry probably for 35 years Yeah. So before he actually started going to the salt flats, mm. you know, as a competitor. And then about 1980, my best friend, Lloyd Perry, which we've been friends since the third grade, literally. You guys have? Yes. That's so <laughs> funny. I was going to say, how'd you guys meet? Well, we met in Miss, you know, Smith's we, class. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's, yeah, we spent. Spent several different little visits to the principal's office oh together. Oh, my gosh. So, that is so funny. But, uh, so, anyhow, he said, let's go out to Salt Flats because he had been involved with the part of the initial uh, start of the USFRA. Yeah. You'll have to listen to the legendary Lloyd Perry's yes. podcast to <laughs> get that. So, in 1980, we went out, and it was kind of interesting because we took his brother's Mustang, and he was in the process of restoring it. So he had all the carpet out of it, and he had the rubber plugs in the floor out of it. Mm -hmm. And the first time we went out, we had to go through water to get out to the race course. Of course, with the plugs out at the bottom, pretty soon the bottom of the car was <laughs> filling up with salt water. And, and, Rookie yeah, mistakes. So, yeah. But that's, that was my first trip out there. Yeah, that's awesome. And so what did you think when you were a spectator? Do you remember anything, any particular it, anything it, that stood out to you it was just it's one of those things that that some people the first time you go you know that this is where you belong and yeah. this is a passion and i know i've i've had some of my friends i've i've 
talk them into talking their wives into coming out just to see what it's like. And some of them love it, and some of them go, I'm glad I came, but I don't ever need to come back. Yeah, yeah, and, you're right. And, that and does so, happen. And and But other people, it just gets in your blood, and you can't stay away. Yeah. And, and uh, it's like your dad. You know, him and I will probably make anywhere from six to ten trips every spring out to look for courses, to look to see what the salt's looking like, see how dry it is so we can— either get on it, start preparing, or, or let California know it's time to come up and start preparing. Yeah. So, so your dad and I have made quite a few trips out there together. So. <laughs> we listen to a lot of 50s music on yeah, the way that's, out of it. <laughs> that's good with me. And one, one time we went out, and the transfer case went out on his truck out on the salt flats. Mm-hmm. So he called AAA, and he said, I need somebody to come get me. They said, where are you? He said, I'm on the salt flats. And they said, well, you need an address. No, we're on the salt flats. And she says, I can't find you. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> and so finally he said, just call the rector in Wendover. Tell him we're on the salt flats. He'll know where we're at. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I could just see him getting all frustrated, all Larry out there. We call him salt flats Larry when he gets in that, those moods. Um, but yeah, so you um, so you got the bug is what you got. And so then you started volunteering. Started volunteering. Uh, I came out, you know, on what do you want me to do? Mm-hmm. And so... Though anybody that's that's been involved in preparing a track, you know that between cones and wire, and so I went through the whole iteration. I became a cone head because mm-hmm. I laid cones, and then to lay down the timing wire, I became a wire nut, mm-hmm. and uh, and then put up the flags. You became part of the the uh, we call them the mile board. So you became p- part of the board, and so we did all of that, and then. Once it's all put together, and, and a lot of people don't realize that just for one course, we lay down 25 miles of wire, mm. and then you have to pick it all up and clean it as you're picking it up. So, uh, and then and, and we put out close to a thousand cones. So it's quite a uh, yeah. an operation yeah. to get set up. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and then you and so you like doing all those things, but you you said you liked doing the rover, yeah, the when, most. Once the course is all set up, then you have the jobs that are actually part of the race. Yeah, you have the course stewards, you have the starters, you have the timers, and and I was able to work through all of those, you know, as a starter for a while, and I and I ended up as the rover, and the rover is the person that's out kind of on the top end of the course in a vehicle. And as the cars come down, you you move around. If it's a high-speed car, then you start moving towards the the top end of the course so you can be there when they get off the course to make sure they get far enough, make sure there's a there's not a problem with the car. Because sometimes you'll, the car will come off the course and the driver doesn't even know there's a fire underneath it. Yeah. You know? And it can be something as simple as a ballistic blanket that's got oil on it. Mm-hmm. And so I really enjoyed that because you got to go right up to the vehicle, uh, check on the driver. They got to know you, you know, and, and they appreciate somebody being there just mm-hmm. to check on them. And so I really enjoyed that. And But the more I did it, pretty soon I thought, you know, I need to get on the other side. Mm-hmm. I need to get on the side that's racing. So we worked towards that. We uh, I started building a 
it was a little Ford Courier because I was going to run in the uh, the mini pickup class. Yeah. And I've always liked small motors. I guess it goes back to the MG I had, the little four-cylinder, and I've always liked them. So I started putting together a, uh, a Courier had a 2300 overhead cam. So I started mm -hmm. putting that together. And we went out to Speed Week, and Jim Zupin had his uh, street roadster on a trailer there for sale. And they pretty much stripped it to build their, their modified roadster. So it was like a body and a chassis and a front end and a rear end. And I kept looking at it. And, and so on the way home, my son, who's been kind of my partner as we've done this, he kept saying, you know you want it. <laughs> you know you want it. <laughs> and I kept saying, well, I'm already building one. He says, yeah, but you know you want a roadster. <laughs> so I got home and called Jim, and we worked out a deal. And, and it was a good deal because he uh, he wanted to see it stay in the valley so that he could watch it and kind of help me put it together and stuff. So we pretty much did that, and and, and it was almost like building a new car. I had to put floor, firewall, um, everything in it. And mm. so. Uh, and then the pickup just went away. Yeah, the pickup okay. went away. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so we ended up doing that. And, and, and it was an interesting story. Once I got running the car um, and Jim and, and you did Chad, his son, who's yeah. a, what a fantastic person Chad is. Yes, the legendary Chad Zupin. Yes. Listen to that podcast yes, as well. Yes, he is. He is an amazing <laughs> he individual. He is a really nice guy, yeah. And uh, so once I got my car running and they were running the modified Roadster, I went up to Jim and I said, Jim, I want to thank you for selling me that car. And he said, I wish I never sold it to you. <laughs> and his wife was with him and she started laughing and he said, no, I'm serious. And I was like, I was a little bit taken back and I said, <laughs> Why? And he said, that car was fun. This new car is nothing but work. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, dear. Yeah. That's so, going faster is always a little bit more work. A little more work. Yeah. yeah it kind of takes a little so, less fun and a little bit more work. <laughs> so, and, and they helped me a lot. And, and so we, we progressed along. And then, and uh, my team is called Penny Annie Racing. And when I first got the car done, it, the body was in primer, and I had an aluminum hood and an aluminum tonneau cover and and just no wheel discs on it. And and we went out to just see, you know, get started. Mm -hmm. And there was, every time we'd pull up to the line, there was this beautiful 29 Roadster out of Florida. It's a street Roadster, and it was built in a NASCAR shop. And my daughter-in-law would go out with us, and... One day she said, I think he's high stakes poker and we're penny ante poker. <laughs> so for Christmas, they bought me shirts that says penny ante racing. So just stuck. Yes. And so what class are you running in or were you running in? I run in G Street Roadster. G Street Roadster. Yeah. And um, what do you have in your G Yeah, G Street Roadster is two liter. Okay. It's between one and a half and two liter. Mm -hmm. So that's 122 cubic inches. And we're naturally aspirated. We're mm -hmm. not turbocharged or anything. And and obviously, the street roadster class, they've got the aerodynamics of a brick. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we currently hold the record at 143.8. 143.8. 143.8. 
Hmm. We've run as fast as 148, and we would like to eventually push the record up over 150. Okay. So, um, I'm sorry, what did you say was your fastest, 148? 148, yeah. 148. Yeah. So, you want to get to 150. And you said... Um, two, two ways, 150. Two ways, 150. <laughs> <laughs> or any combination that yeah. gets you there. Maybe a little less, a little more. Um, and then you said... Um, now, you were the driver originally, is that right? I was the driver originally. Uh, once we got it done, for fun, I thought we, we'd drive out to uh, the East Coast Timing Association because mm -hmm. they run the, the mile on an airport. Yeah. So we towed it out to Wilmington, and we raced out there. And the first time, that's Wilmington, Ohio. The first time I lost a motor, and so then... It was enough fun that we did it again, and we ended up getting two records out there because they let you move up in class. If you're a G, they'll let you run an F and anything above that. So, hmm. we, so we currently hold the G and the F Street Roadster class Jeez. in the East Coast. That's awesome. Timing Association. How many races do they run a year? Do you know? Uh, I think they run three. Run three. Yeah. And is it run pretty similar to? It's the same. They run. Other than their their circle track classes, they're pretty much the same classes that SCTA mm. runs okay. and USFRA runs. They have street roadsters and roadsters and lakesters and uh, a mile. You don't get too many streamliners. There's just yeah. not enough space for a streamliner. Mm -hmm. And they run lots and lots of motorcycles mm -hmm. and Corvettes and things like that. And yeah. it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, we had Scott Horner on, and he's a motorcycle guy, and he I think he raced – I think I'm pretty sure he raced at an ACTA as an ACTA two club hat. Yeah. So they, there's there's the East Coast Timing Association. There's the uh, there's one in Maine, Loring, Loring, Maine, mm -hmm. and that's another association. And then there's one in Texas, mm -hmm. and they run there. So if someone wants to run there, you could run quite a few races, and and. The mile is fun because at the end of the mile, you don't have a lot of shutdown area. Oh, so it gets exciting real it quick. Gets, it gets real <laughs> fun at the end. Um, but one thing about it, we were out there, and it's not like Bonneville. If it rains, you wait 10 minutes, and the water mm. runs off the asphalt, and you go back to racing. Mm. Bonneville, if it rains, you pack up your gear and go home. Yeah, that's interesting because they probably get some pretty good downpours oh, too yeah, down there. Yeah. So and you're just like, oh, let's wait yeah. this out so. for this little cell to move over, and we'll keep racing. That's that's kind of a little positive. So yeah, so it was it's it was really fun. I'd like to go back and do it again. They've moved from Wilmington, Ohio, to Blytheville, Arkansas, mm. and so I'd like to eventually go back there. I'd like to too. I went to Maxton, but that's mm -hmm. about it. I, that's the only one I've yeah. ever been to. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then, uh, so, y during this time, you kind of, are you you're volunteering and you're running the car, or are you just running the car? I'm still volunteering I, as far as setting up. I'm mm -hmm. still helping set up and everything. Then once it's set up, then I start working, you know, go strictly with my car and and, and do that. And uh, um, it, it's funny because... I never thought I was a real competitive person, and we got the record, and then I lost it to a gentleman named Mike Ornsby out of Colorado. And as soon as I lost it, I went, hey, I want that back. <laughs> so we went and got it back. Oh, good. So it was fun. Good. And uh, 
and we have the distinction of being one of the people that actually had a rule change based on my car. And when we first ran it, I had some headlights on it. And the street roadster class, you have to have headlights, mm -hmm. fenders, rear fenders, taillights, a horn, technically street legal. <clears throat> so Dan Warner, who used to be the mayor of Impound, he come in and he said, those headlights are illegal. They're too small. And I said, okay. I said, I will change them, Dan, but let me tell you why I think I'm within the rules. <laughs> he said, okay. So I took the ring off that held the lens because the rule says the lens has to be five inches. Well, the ring covers up part of the lens. Mm -hmm. So when he measured it, it was smaller than five inches. So they changed the rules. Now it says the exposed lens oh. must be five inches. And there's lots of like little things like that in the rules that there. are, you can interpret it one way versus another. <laughs> and, so, and, and Dan told me because of racers, the rule book went from 15 pages to 250 <laughs> <right>. pages. <laughs> hey, we're trying to push the limits to it's any way we can here. We that's kind of on going. that line, right? right? All the time. Yeah. So, but then you decided that you were going to run for USFRA president? As, as a volunteer and especially during setup and stuff, there was some things that, that I thought could be improved on. Uh, one of them was at the end of a race, when you're cleaning up, we have some storage sheds where we keep all of our cones and equipment and everything so that, so that uh, it's stored away and protected. And they would get so cluttered that you literally could not walk into, the, you'd have to move stuff out to get to things in the back. And that always bothered me as one of the people that, had to get in there and Go get the to equipment. The back. <laughs> yeah. So when uh, Jim Burkdahl decided he had had enough, he he was the president for ten years. Uh, USFRI current president runs uh, two year terms. So he said he didn't want to run anymore, and I thought, okay, here's here's my chance. And so uh, Terry Nish actually approached me and said. Excuse me. He says, if you want to run, he says, I want to nominate you, which I thought, knowing Terry, that was quite an honor. Yeah, absolutely. So he went ahead and nom honor, uh, nominated me, and I got it. And I'm in my eighth year now. And so I got one more year on this this term, and I don't know if I'm going to do. You're deciding uh, what you're going to yeah. do. Yeah. So anyhow, I, I've been able to do a lot of the things I wanted to do. The club was always kind of borderline going into the red, and sometimes I actually went in the red. And so I thought I could help that, and, and we have. We're, we're financially quite stable now, and we've been able to buy a lot of new equipment. Uh, we used to rent our radios. Now we bought our own radios, and we bought repeaters, and we bought new computers and, and things to try to make it better for the racers. Mm. And so that's kind of the goal of the USFRA. We're really racer-oriented. And so, uh, and I think you hear that a lot from racers that there's racers that really enjoy your meat particularly and, yeah. and, uh, that you are definitely there for, for the racers, I feel like, which, um, is great. Like you do get, you guys do a great job, but, um, what, um, 
I wanted to kind of go back to where you were talking about. You went out to go look at tracks with my dad. What What do you guys look for? What do you? What is something that you see? We we when we go out, and and you know we have to wait till it's it's the right dryness to get mm-hmm. on. And, and unfortunately, people go out there when it's not dry and leave ruts and. And so it gets it gets a little frustrating, but oh yeah, as you, you do go, donuts. I've seen. You, I mean, oh yeah, you do donuts, and and uh, you know, there's people out there going 160, 170 miles an hour. With, it'd be nice if the BLM yeah. would just put a sign that says, "Hey, like yeah. this is it's you know, be careful when it's wet." I don't know. Well, they do have a sign that says you're not supposed to go on when it's wet, oh. but nobody nobody. And then you like attention. a big sign, yeah. you know, like a big bold sign. Yeah. You know, okay. um, we look for for new growth. Uh, so it's really interesting if you've ever been on the salt when it's starting to grow, it looks like giant spider webs all over on top of the salt. So we're looking for that. We're looking for hardness. Mm-hmm. We're looking for for thickness. And uh, it's funny because Larry, every time we go, he has to take his, it's like a rock hammer. And he uses that to take the, the spike in and he Oh, hits uh-huh. to, pulls up just a small little one inch square so we can see how thick it is and mm-hmm. see the texture. So, so we're looking for that. We're looking to see how much salt is out at the five mile. How much is it the six mile? How much is it the seven? Uh, and because you have to have at least seven miles to even run. I mean, we have a our long course is a five mile time course, but you still got to shut a car down that's going 400 miles an hour, 300 or 200. Yeah. So a minimum of seven miles. A minimum of seven miles. And there's been years that the last two miles were kind of rough and sometimes almost mud. And I can shut down in bad salt, but I can't accelerate. Mm. So I've been talking with Roger Banowich, who is the North American representative for the FIA, the World Record Association. Mm-hmm. And he wants to come back to Bonneville because he wants records set at Bonneville. And I keep telling him, I can decelerate in bad salt, but I can't accelerate in bad salt. And to set a world record, you have to go both directions within one hour of each mm-hmm. other. And so because of that, there's no way you can accelerate back to that terminal speed to get that record that you want. So we've been talking back and forth, and I don't know what they're going to do. He's trying to figure out what to do because they really want to bring world records back to Bonneville. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So, and and I start, I don't know how far you want to go with this, but, yeah. but cool. he, he says, well, everybody wants a world record. And I said, Roger, I said, Number one, it's quite expensive because you have to pay the association fees plus whatever event you're running at. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you get? You get a certificate that goes on your wall. I said, people would rather get a 200-mile-an-hour hat or a 300-mile because you can get a hat, you can get a shirt, you can get a mm-hmm. jacket. And when you're wearing it, people will go, what is that? And you can tell them what it is. And I says, but if you've got a certificate that's on your wall in your garage or something, nobody knows. And so he's going, oh, we never thought of that. So maybe we'll, so any, it's a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, the salt, do you think that it does good like on days or on years that there's more like wetness like there is this year? You know. It, does it help it grow more, do you think? 
it, it's hard to say. As many studies, there's been a, at least eight studies on mm-hmm. the salt flats. Um, nobody really knows how it truly works. Mm. Right now, the and and being a, the president of the, the USFRA, I get calls from people. I get to talk to people. So I've been talking with a gentleman that's the hydrologist for the Department of Natural Resources for the state of Utah. And I talked to him. He's, he's, an, he's a good guy. And uh, he's telling me that the water table at the Bonneville is right up against the salt. And I don't think people realize that there's a giant salt aquifer underneath the Bonneville salt flats. And the water table is right up against the bottom of the salt. So that's one of those good and bad. It's good because it helps the salt come up from that aquifer mm-hmm. through capillary action up through the salt. But it's bad because when it rains, there's no place for the water to go. Mm. It has to have nothing and, but apar- evaporation. Mm. So when it rains, the water stays on longer. Because mm. I remember there's years that it would rain and there would be two or three inches of water. You go back the next day and it was ready to race on. Mm-hmm. Well, I've seen that before. And when you look at what happened last year, once it rained, the water never came off all year long. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, but do you think it was, was the, was it full? Cause we had a dry year last year. And that's, what's funny is the great, the great salt that's lake was, was down and it was considered a dry year, but the water table was up against the Just bottom the, of the, yeah, yeah, for some reason. Yeah. Huh. It's interesting. Yeah. That is like, people don't have a, yeah, it does seem like they're doing a study every time. It's like, we don't need a study. We just need yeah. the salt restoration plan to go into place. Uh, <laughs> we know how to fix it because yeah. they did fix it. For five years, mm-hmm. in 97, 98, 99, and 2000, they were able to pump back on the salt flats an average of one and a half million tons a year. And there are NASA photos. There's a NASA satellite that goes over the salt flats every 17 days and takes pictures. So there's NASA photos that sure it showed during those five years the salt flats grew, got mm-hmm. bigger. And if they're getting bigger because it's a shallow bowl, it's getting thicker. Mm-hmm. And, but as soon as they quit doing that, it started shrinking again. Yeah. So, so we do, that's, I, that's, I didn't know that about the satellite. I think I did now that you say it, but that is interesting because you have proof that it works that this, because they're always questioning there. I mean, like the people yeah. in charge uh, are like, oh, we don't know for sure if that's going to work mm-hmm. or not, you know, but it's worth a try versus another study. Yeah. We know a study doesn't work. I know, that's- <laughs> But that led you kind of into um, Save the Salt, um, and you kind of got heavy into say. Are you on? Were you on the Save the Salt board? I w- I was the USFRA representative. Okay, for, save for the, the, salt. the Save the Salt. Yeah, and so you you kind of hopped in when like SEMA when they kind of started yeah, joining we, up with SEMA. Yeah. Yeah, and and we would go down to the SEMA convention, and mm-hmm. and they would have. Uh, uh, Meeting down there for the save the salt and talk about different things and and then and then uh, I was always working with uh, Russ Dean who mm-hmm. is the chair of the mm-hmm. save the salt and he's also kind of their lawyer and then Stuart Goswin uh, we worked him and he's kind of taken over the lead for for the save the salt at the national level and you know the the original laydown 
was really done by the Utah racers. They met with, at that time, it was uh, Riley Industries and and worked out the laydown. And mm-hmm. so uh, it seems like every time it's at the local level, something gets done. And once it moves to the national level. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. Uh, <laughs> So I got involved with that. So and you, you and the mine were working together. It was just, it was just the racers and the mine working together, basically, for that laydown project, which is ba- back in then, yes. The, which the, is with, what technically is the salt restoration plan now. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And then Riley sold to the current owner, which is Intrepid, and Intrepid quit doing it. And we tried to get the BLM to put into the mining leases that they had to put back on what they took off. Yeah. And because hope, salt is a byproduct of, the, of what the, they're mining. The salt is a byproduct. I think people sometimes think they're mining salt yeah. and they're not. It's just a it's a byproduct. So what what they're actually mining for off the salt flats is potash. Mm-hmm. And they use potash as a fertilizer. And at one time potash was used uh to make ammunition mm. and gunpowder. And that's how the, the potash industry got started out there. In 1917, which was the start of the First World War, most of our potash came from Europe. Well, obviously, when the war's in Europe, we couldn't get anything. So the federal government gave the Soldero Salt Company, I don't know how many thousands of acres, so that they could start producing potash for fertilizer and gunpowder. And then since then, it's been bought by Kaiser. It was bought by Riley, and now the current owner is Intrepid. But, oh, so Saldero, that's why it's the Saldero. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay and, I didn't know that. And when you go out there, if you look on the south side about where the Saldero is, you can see one of their original drying uh, drums that they used to dry to get the potash out. Huh. It, so what was the drum made out of? Is it? Just it's a big a, iron drum. An it's, iron it's, drum. It's, huh. it's like a like a extra long uh, cement mixer type thing, and that's what they and used. It's still to, out there. Yeah, you can see it as you drive on the freeway. You can see it. I'm surprised the salt hasn't eaten it yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, oh, good. Well, that's uh, that's interesting little history on like how it's it. So <laughs> I'm trying to be careful here. So intrepid. They're just what? What is the reason that they just won't work with the with the racers? No, that's not the. It, it's not intrepid. That's the issue. Okay, intrepid is willing to work with the racers. The thing is, is intrepid. Intrepid is a for profit company. Okay, so if they're not required by the leases or not required by some law to put the salt back in, and the the original leases. There's not even anything in there about mm. them putting the salt back on. Even when they're all done mining, they don't yeah. have to put the salt back. All they have to do is go fill in the ditches and things like that. So we know that from even the mining company's own documents that there's in excess of 250 million tons yeah. of salt sitting on the south side of the freeway that used to be on the north side, used to be on Bonneville. Mm. And so... We want to get it put back on. Yeah. And well, you think the people that manage the land would be like, hey, uh, that worked. So why don't we, you need to, in the lease, put that on there yeah. since they're managing the land. 
You would think that. The BLM. I'm talking yeah, about the yes, BLM. <laughs> yeah, Bureau of Land Management. And we've tried to work with them. My, This is my theory, that as long as people can go out and see that big expanse of white salt, that's all they care about. Mm. They don't care whether it's four inches thick or two inches thick or a half inch thick. When When the English came over... When Campbell and Cobb and those guys came over in the 30s, the late 30s, the tire companies did not know uh, what the salt was going to do to the racing tires that were being made at that time in England. Mm -hmm. So they came over and they took core samples and temperatures and stuff. From their documents, we know that the salt averaged 11 inches thick. Yeah. Right now, when we go out and try to find a course, if I can find the thickest I can usually find is two inches, mm. and most of the time it's less than an inch, and in some places it's down to a half inch or a quarter of an inch. Yeah, which is it's hard because if the if the mud underneath is soft, then when we start putting cars on it, and especially cars that are putting down some horsepower. And I don't think people realize that some of those cars are weighing 6,000 pounds, 6,800 pounds, and uh, it just starts breaking it up, and then it's junk. Mm. And that it, is that usually like on worse years that that yes. happens yes. when it's a little bit yes. more thin? Yes. Um, so it's just frustrating knowing that there's something that works and it's not getting done, but it's, it's hopefully we'll get working on it and get something going. But you, after that, you, you went to save the salt, you. They, cause it went back to Washington mm-hmm. and things were kind of getting slow again. A group of people, which was Rick Vesco, Nishes, your dad, um, Tom Berkland, mm. Uh, I'm trying to think who else was involved in that. Anyway, we decided we need to get back at a local level. So we all met at Terry Nish's, and they formed the Save the Salt Utah Alliance, which was supposed to be like a Utah branch of the National Save the Salt. So I don't know if I was too slow to raise to say no, but I ended up being elected as the chairman of the, of the Save the Salt Utah Alliance. And so I... <laughs> Everybody said that. not it, and you forgot yeah. you were. Yeah, and so, um, so we've been doing that, and it's it, it's interesting because we went, um, we went to the state legislature, and to get money because we we decided that this program was a state, federal, private, which would be the rapers and the mining company. We could we could all come together, and all have a stake in it then it would be easier to get done. So my, your dad and I went down to the state legislature multiple times, uh, went in front of the Natural Resource Board. We went in front of different and laid out the whole deal about the safe zone. And so, and we actually met with the the Brad Wilson, who's the uh, speaker, speaker. Speaker, yeah. And uh, they actually gave us $5 million. It was a million dollars a year for five years, but it was tied in with the feds coming up with their share of the right. money. Right. And so, the, and this is when you get just really quick, just to clarify, the racers had to come up with a certain amount of money. Yes. The state legislature had to come up with a certain money. And then the, the fed, the federal government. Had to, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because the feds 
manage the land. It's actually federal land. Right. So you can't exclude them. So we got that. So then we tried to get, well, it was interesting because to get the state money, we went out on a local basis. We went out to all the racers and said, here's the, the committee. You need to send emails, letters, or phone calls. And your dad is a sergeant of arms down there when they have legislature. Pretty soon, he's got people stopping him in the hall saying, why is my email box full about the Bonneville Southland? Why am I getting emails from somebody from Sweden? And and pretty soon, they're going, stop the emails. <laughs> we'll give you your money. <laughs> so we're waiting. This $5 million is waiting for the federal money, and it never came, and it never came, and it never came. So pretty soon, state legislators are going, why is this $5 million just sitting there? So finally, they said, look, this is what we'll do. We'll leave a million dollars in the kitty, and the other's got to go back to the legislature. For, but as soon as the Fed money starts coming in, then you can come back and revisit us, and we will find the money again. And we said, okay. So we went longer and longer waiting for the Fed money. And we have so far have zero dollars from the Feds. The BLM said that they think they can find us $125,000. Of course, they want it to go to a study Um, first off. Come on. Anyway, that's kind of where we're at. You can't can't blame the mining company. They're not breaking any laws. They're not breaking their leases. you, You can't expect them to do it out of their own pocket. Right. Especially when it's the BLM that has well, and their business, and they have exactly to, you know they have to make money. Yeah, and they're on board. They would love to do it, right? And they're the ones that that laid out the plan, told us about how much it was going to cost, and because they have to upgrade the mine a little bit too. They, they some of the ditches they have to upgrade. They had to put in a new. There's a freshwater alluvial fan at the base of the mountains. And it's the water that comes off of the snow and stuff, and it's good water. It's not salty like what's underneath the salt flats. And that's what they use to flood their their beds. Okay. What, what they do is they pump. There's a federal ditch that runs down the east side of Bonneville Salt Flats. It's 14 miles long, probably 20 feet deep, 40 feet wide. Because of gravity and wind, the salt that comes up into a solution in the wintertime when the salt flats is a couple of goes into that ditch, and then that ditch flows down to the freeway, and they pump it under the freeway into some more ditches, and then it goes over to the mining company. It goes into these huge, big drying beds, and then they monitor it, and the first thing that falls out is salt, and then when it gets to a certain point, they put it in another bed, and then eventually the potash falls out. So these beds are full of pure salt. Yeah. There's one of those beds that we know is 6,400 acres. That's 6,500. The salt in there is five feet thick of pure salt. Be nice. Yeah, it'd be nice to get it back. <laughs> so, um, so they had some old, old pumps on this alluvial fan so we took the million dollars from the state and we bought a new pump and they're trying to fill in, not fill in, they're trying to cover and line some of the ditches so we don't lose so much of that 
fresh water to evaporation or to sinking in the ground so they can get more of it because the alluvial fan is not giant size. It, it's, it's got some limitations. So that's kind of what we've been working on. And now we're just waiting for somebody else. Oh, yeah. The federal government. So was, there yeah. was no money in that, that new budget they passed, obviously. for no. And so how much, how much does the federal government need to... The the plan was for the state was going to do five, uh-huh. the racers were going to do a million, and the federal government was supposed to come up with forty five million. Okay, I mean a drop in the bucket. Oh yeah, <sighs> they spend, and maybe you can you can cut all this out, but they spend on wild I don't horses, cut out. <laughs> on wild horses, feeding them and corralling them and having veterinary care for them. Mm-hmm. The BLM spends $88 million yeah. a year. Yeah. We wanted $50 million over a 10-year program okay. to restore For the bottom years. of the yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, you know, wild horse is great. That's a great thing. But, yeah, I mean, you're just asking for something so so minimal compared to what. Yeah. what the, and especially something that is worldwide used mm-hmm. and um, and... You know, I, I I don't know. There's just it's it's really a legacy of Utah that's not getting protected. It is a world famous place. Yes. I, my, your dad and I, we spent a lot of time out there at the access road, and I am amazed at how many foreign tourists come to this country. And one of the things they want to see is the Bonneville Salt Lake. Yeah. Just this year, we were out there, and there was a guy that came in from Hungary. And he said in 1973, when Hungary was still a communist country, he said they passed out books in school, and one book went to girls and one went to boys. The girls had sewing, and and he said in the boys, there was a thing about the Bonneville Salt Flats. And Mm. he said, ever since then, I've wanted to come to the Bonneville Salt Flats. And he said, I finally got here this year. This is He's wanted to go since 1973. (laughs) And and it's... I mean, I can we can spend the rest of the night talking about stories of people that talk to us right. about going to the salt flats and stuff. And I've decided that when the foreign tourists come here, it's like they want to go Yellowstone, Bonneville, the Grand Canyon, and Las Vegas. Yeah, when they come to the West. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And yeah, it is a historic place. And um, well, so you're on the Save the Salt Alliance, the Utah Alliance. You're the president of that. And so you kind of work you're working with the state mainly on that, right? We're working with the state. We're, and you're, we still, you're trying to work with our our federal yeah, representatives. Yeah. We still still try to work with the BLM at the there it's the West Desert District. Uh, so we we try to work with them. But this is this is what they think of the Bonneville Salt Flats. When they put new signs out there, they put a sign up that said Bonneville Salt Flats. Guess what picture they put on it? What? Arches. <laughs> That's incredible. And so we had to go to them and say, this is Bonneville Salt Flats. Why do you have a picture of the arches? So they did change it. <laughs> but it's it's frustrating. I know. I've heard BML, BLM directors call it Thule County. Uh, and I'm like, you're, I mean. Well, it, you, you know, you're, it's, it's like your dad says. It's almost like just a stepping stone. Right. They, they change directors every Two years. And, and that's one of the problems yeah. is that it is a stepping stone. So you yeah. don't, you, the good directors 
mm-hmm. move move, move on. on. Yeah. But what we really need is uh, is help from our federal representatives in Utah. And uh, what district is Tool County? It's, it, what is that? What are we in? It's whatever what, Chris Stewart is. Yeah, it's I think it's two. Is it two? I don't know. I don't know what it is. It could be two. Yeah. It seems. But then I'm thinking for, but anyways, whatever district he's in, um, he actually just stepped down our federal representative. So Mm -hmm. hopefully, I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe there's a good racer out there that wants to run for. (laughs) It's it's interesting how they divide up states and stuff, because the bulk of his district is St. George, which is in the southernest part of the state. Yeah. Right against the border. But then they stick Tooele County in with his district. Huh. So, anyway. Yeah, it kind of goes lengthwise yeah, yeah. versus. Um, so, and and we've been on, I've been on, uh, there's a local program called County Seat. It's run by Chad Booth. Uh, Chris Stewart and I were on that together talking about the Bonneville Salt Flats. And that seven years ago, he promised he would do something. And he would get, because he was on the appropriations committee and mm-hmm. he could get us money. Haven't got a penny. Yeah. So. And then COVID hit in between there. Yes. It just has been chaos. Um, so what do you, what are the next steps that you think we need to do? Do you, or if you can say, I don't know if you can even say, but. I, I've talked to Stuart Goswin. We've talked to Russ Dean. As far as I'm concerned, and, and my vote is to litigate. Yes. I think that's where Russ Dean's at. Yeah. As far Yep. He says and, it a little bit yeah. feistier, a yeah. little bit hotter than that. He, uh, It's like he says, sometimes just going through the initial paperwork to file litigation makes a change in the BLM. Yeah. Oh, so. good. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? That was a really interesting um, talk. I haven't had, uh, I mean, my dad was on the first time, but it was my first interview. Mm-hmm. So it was. Yeah you know, kind of working out the kinks, but not a real like in-depth um, conversation about a save the salt. So that was, yeah. or about what's going on out there. I tell people that there's only three places in the world like the Bonneville Salt Flats. There's Bonneville, which is seven miles from food, lodging, anything you want. An hour and a half from an international airport. Yes. <laughs> and the other place is in Australia. It's Lake Gardner. It's 128 miles on a dirt road just to get to it. Mm-hmm. You literally have to take everything with you, lodging, food, water, and the flies are horrendous. Mm. The other place is in Bolivia, and it's at 12,000 feet. So a naturally aspirated car does not run very well at 12,000 no. feet. So People don't run very well no, there either. It no. <laughs> the, first, the first couple times they tried running there, they literally, people got altitude sickness. Yeah, yeah. So, Anyway, uh, I tell people, if you want to know what it feels like to go to another planet, you go to the Bonneville Salt Flats because mm. you think you're on another planet. Yeah. Yep. There's no, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great place. I love it, it is. It has my it heart. Yep. <laughs> so, okay. Well, um, that is a great talk. And we just say, go to save the org If you have, mm-hmm. um, make a donation, um, obviously sounds like maybe there's, some expenses that might be coming up to help save the salt and yeah. move forward. Um, do you do you feel positive about um, about where we're going and which which direction? If if we do, I feel positive if we do go to 
some form of litigation. Uh, unfortunately, we have had the support of SEMA, but after two and a half million dollars of their money, mm. they haven't seen a lot of progress. And so they feel they need to go other directions. They're still supporting with personnel and stuff, but not a lot of money. Yeah. So now we're going to have to rely on donations and Racers. go that way. Yeah. Mm. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people that have been donating money haven't seen any progress. Yeah. And so they tend to be a little reluctant because they say, well, you know, you guys have been begging money for 25 years and where are we at? And so it, it is frustrating. Mm, yeah. And it, it during that time when you guys were setting up that plan with the mine and the legislature and, and the state legislature and the BLM, it felt like, oh, we're going to, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Yes. And then it was just that one representative yeah. so, held us up. It's and like, It's like running into a wall. And then, right. And you're just relying on one person to mm -hmm. to really make that decision. We did have, uh, we approached, because the Congress is the one that appropriates the money. Right. The Senate can't. But we did go to Mitt Romney, and Mitt Romney put the word, <clears throat> put word in to the appropriations, uh, what he could, but he can't really uh, put a bill in to get money. But he tried to push it as much as he could. Mm. And so Romney's tried to help us. And, but when um, Bishop was there, even though he was on the natural resources committee, he, every time we talked to him, he said, well, I don't want to step on another congressman's toes. So you need to go down to the congressman who's Bonneville's in his district. Mm. And that never worked. Right. Well, uh, Anyway, any of the racers in Utah, you know, if somebody starts can uh, start pushing the Bonneville salt flats, ask him what he thinks about them. Give him a good question. So what are you going to do for the Bonneville salt flats? So, but, you know, what you can do is go to savethesalt.org. Your donation will help with acquiring funds that are going to be needed in order to accomplish the salt restoration plan. Um. Also, go to saltflats.com and check out the USFRA and uh, their races that they have coming. The one in September is their World of Speed. It's a great meet. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening to this Land Speed Legends episode. And please consider liking, sharing, and giving it a review. Also, don't forget to go and like my Facebook and Instagram pages under Land Speed Legends. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Land Speed Legends. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with the show on Facebook and Instagram under Land Speed Legends. Until next time.